Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the Medical Officer of Health, joins us to give us an update on what's happening with COVID-19 locally. And with the pandemic, how do the city's budget and the tax hikes affect residents in each particular ward? Clinical trials are starting for some prototype vaccines. Is it too soon for us to be optimistic? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, yesterday, of course, we had our uh, weekly town hall, virtual town hall, here in the city of Hamilton that was carried on the 900 CHML with the mayor and uh, Paul Johnson and, of course, the medical officer of health, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, who joins us uh, on the Bill Kelly Show right now to give us an update on what's happening here in our community. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be with you again today. Doctor, maybe you could clarify something, because I know that when you look at headlines sometimes, you know, that doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, Public Health has ordered five retirement homes to improve infection control. Uh, But could you explain that process just a little bit? I don't want people to think that these places are are being negligent in a number of different areas. Uh, That There's a checklist, I guess, essentially, when your inspectors go in there. Is that not the case? That is the case. And so when we're uh, working with retirement homes and long-term care homes, they're primarily regulated by other people. So the Ministry of Long-Term Care regulates long-term care homes and the uh, uh, Retirement Homes Regulatory Authority regulates retirement homes. So they're doing the overall review and uh, looking at care broadly and, and all the expectations that they set out. I know the ministries have, you know, very detailed checklists of their own that looks at all of those aspects of care. Normally, from a public health perspective, we're in there primarily looking at things from a food premise perspective in those homes. So making sure food safety is, you know, well in hand and things are, are safe from that perspective. And then if they have um, infection control issues, we, we are happy to consult with them. And we also well, work with them to manage outbreaks when they do have outbreaks in those settings. But what we did this time around, um, because we saw with our first outbreak, our first two outbreaks that... Um, you know, there were some challenges in terms of, of understanding guidance and making sure that, that things were in place um, and understanding that, you know, the PPE that was needed and the infection control practices, which, you know, for long-term care homes is pretty routine. But in retirement homes, these are largely places where people are living pretty independently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they aren't, they aren't really, you know, healthcare settings, if you will, unlike long-term care homes or, or hospitals and that sort of thing. So they needed a little bit more help to both get the PPE as well as understand you know, how, to, how to use it more broadly. So we decided to go in with a checklist that we developed and go through um, a more comprehensive assessment of how all of the homes in, uh, in Hamilton were doing, the long-term care homes, the retirement homes, and the residential care facilities, and we've expanded that to shelters as well and group homes. And, you know, we found that, that around this PPE issue, the personal protective equipment, masks, gowns, shields, um, and some other things like having longer-term outbreak plans and and staffing plans that they didn't all necessarily have those uh, in hand. So most of them were very happy to to meet with our suggestions and and get you know move forward with those. We did some education with them. Public Health Ontario's assisted with some really good education sessions for long-term care homes and retirement homes. Uh, and then there were some who you know still weren't able to get those things together. Um, around, say, an outbreak plan and that sort of thing. So these are these are quite preventive measures. They've 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 complied with a lot of different things, um, but in this setting, we just needed to underscore the importance of those those things being in hand in advance of any outbreak happening. And so for those that that hadn't gotten there, to underscore the importance of that and and say we really need you to do this and. You know, how can we work with you to get those done? We did we did use something under the Health Protection Promotion Act where we order them. It sounds like a very ominous term to mm-hmm. order them to do so. And it is meant to underscore the importance. We know that 85% of people, 90% of people are, are going to come on board, um, you know, just through that initial discussion. But sometimes it's not until you really say, no, no, this this is really important. It's so important. We're going to go to this this length of, of sending you a formal notice about it, a formal order about it that they come on board. And I know when we first did that with the 31 uh, residential care facilities or second level lodging homes, a number of them called back and said, we apologize. We just didn't realize you know, how serious this really was. And thank you for drawing this to our attention. So, so you wouldn't categorize any of the concerns as egregious then? No, I mean, certainly anything that we saw that we were quite worried about, we escalated quite quickly. Um, and so we, 
we, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're very serious about all of these issues. Sure. And so, you know, we have acted very quickly with them. And, and, you know, we've worked with the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, um, sorry, the Ministry of Long-Term Care Inspectors. They've been, they've been trying to really assist and support the long-term care homes. And so, you know, if we had a, a serious concern, we would escalate that quickly to the Ministry of Long-Term Care. Uh, similarly, with the Retirement Homes Regulatory Authority, where, where we had serious concerns, we brought them in early. And those, you know, were quickly, most of those were quickly brought into line as well. Um, but no, the things that we're working on are absolutely what we think it needs to be in place. But they're not, it's not that people aren't cared for in the homes and that people aren't, you know, looked after. It's just we need to have all our T's crossed and I's dotted right now. Absolutely. Uh, the other news from uh, from the uh, virtual town hall last night was that, well, as of noon yesterday anyway, no new cases. Talk to us about what that means in, in this battle. Well, that was, you know, we've had, I've had two of those um, times in the, in throughout the course of this outbreak. There was one night about a month ago where I, I actually called back to, to staff that were working. They work until about nine o'clock following up cases. We find that after about nine or 10, people don't really want to be woken up to talk more mm-hmm. about, uh, about what's gone on when we have positive uh, cases. Um, and, uh, and they said, no, it's, it's real. There's no new cases. That's why we haven't sent you anything. <laughs> and so I said, you know, that was a, a day that would go down uh, in the books in the course of the outbreak. And of course, then again, we had this one yesterday with no new cases. And so I think the, this is particularly indicative of a couple of things. One is that we know in looking at the modeling and looking at it on Ontario-wide basis that we seem to be leveling out. The, the things that everybody have been doing, staying at home, going out only when you need to, essential work only, work from home, those are working. They're absolutely having an impact. When you look at countries like Spain and Italy and where they were, they you know got to. Um, you can see just how different the experience has been here in Ontario and across Canada as a whole. So, absolutely, feel that curve is leveling out. Are we, you know, at past, just past, or about to pass the peak? Yep, we hope that's the, the case. I mean, only time will tell, um, ultimately. But uh, that's absolutely had an impact, and so there's no doubt that's part of it. I think too, we have been out testing in some of the settings where we're more concerned. So we've had a, a larger number of tests of both residents and staff in um, our long-term care homes where we've had outbreaks and we're going to, as the, the has been directed from the province, we're going to continue to expand that testing and test all long-term care home residents over the coming weeks. And uh, so I think some of that proactive testing has meant that people are tested and we found them a little earlier than we might have otherwise, which you know led to a whole lot of tests coming in about you know, over last weekend and over the end of last week, uh, beginning of this week, but then you, you do see a bit of a slowdown afterwards. Doctor, let's let's talk for if we could for a couple of minutes about testing. Uh, we've always been told, and, and I think we all buy into the fact that okay, that's got to be one of the key components here of, of tracking and, and testing in situations like this. But there are some who feel that well, it's at, at some point everybody who wants a test should get a test just to make sure that they're going to be okay. Uh, yet I'm hearing from many healthcare professionals they're saying no, 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 that's a waste of resources. You don't need to do that. What's what's the common line of thinking on this? So when we, you know, whenever we do anything in in healthcare, you know, we need to do it with a clear uh, purpose in mind about why we're doing it. And so, you know, we talk about this in in healthcare more broadly in terms of resource um, utilization and the the very significant cost that healthcare is on our budget. And so, you know, when we order a test, we do it because there's a, a you know a reason to do it. There's something we're looking for. Um, and so it's no different when we're working in a in a case like this. So. You know, testing just for the sake of wanting to know um, doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, for an individual who's well, who's not otherwise been exposed to COVID, um, you know, has nothing to do with these the settings that we're trying to look at more closely, like long-term care retirement homes, it doesn't make any sense to have a test. And and the other thing is, it really is just an indication of that person's status at that exact moment in time. It, um, you know, they could be um, infected and not yet positive on their test. They could be infected the next half hour um, because of, you know, something that happens to them. And it can give a false sense of, of reassurance if they get symptoms afterwards about, oh, well, I didn't have a test. Or they can give a false sense of reassurance the other way. If you've had somebody who's been exposed um, and their test is negative, they think, oh, I didn't get it. But it's a 14-day incubation period for this virus, and so you may end up positive on the 14th day, not the, the second day when you went for testing. So there's, you really have to 
think about these tests not as a sort of, you know, cure-all to to knowing whether or not you have COVID, but really how does it help us to understand the, the disease, to make sure we find people who are ill and help them understand why they are ill and the, the steps they need to take to isolate. And then in these larger settings, you know, we're using them to understand, you know, how might this virus be spreading? And so there's been a strategy at the provincial level with first a smaller number of long-term care homes to look at what are the patterns? What do we see in these homes in terms of of the number of people who are, are uh, positive and how might asymptomatic spread be playing into that? And now the provinces said, well, can we please test all of the long-term care homes to, to look at this more broadly and uh, and make sure we have a handle on this? Well, the, the numbers don't lie. I mean, I think, I think it's about half of the people that have uh, sadly died as a result of COVID were in these facilities in one way, shape or form. Uh, does, does that indicate that if, if we can do something about that, then the, the, those numbers fall significantly? Yeah, the the main thing we've seen in these uh, in these outbreaks is is the kind of of work we've been doing with the homes to uh, work with them to understand. Do they understand the guidance, the directives that have been put out from the province? Do they have good infection control practices? Do they have the personal protective equipment they need on hand? Are they adequately staffed? Do they have a nursing director or a director of care on hand who can oversee overall care? It's it's all of those things that are good practices every day that are I would say are the backbone, the absolute most important part in um, you know protecting the the health of of the residents in these settings and and if COVID does get introduced as it has done, can they how can they manage that? Do they have a plan in place? You know, do their staff understand it? Because understandably, their staff get fearful as well. They don't want to get infected and take it home to their their families. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's absolutely the background, the backbone of the response. And then testing to understand, you know, the cases who are symptomatic and make sure that they're adequately um, uh, isolated is key. Understanding how much spread uh, is happening in the homes, and you know, in this bigger picture looking at it to at the at all of the homes to understand where is it you know what else is the story behind those homes that may have some asymptomatic um, cases but don't get spread and those that do and so this is all part of of what we're trying to understand I'm not going to drag you into the political decision. I think it is a political decision about when to quote unquote open the economy and ease some of these restrictions. Uh, but I can only hope that uh, those that are going to make that decision are going to be leaning on the expert opinion of people like yourself and other medical officers of health and, and doctors in this whole situation. As, as you see how this is evolving, and, and there has been some good news over the last six or seven days, doctor, are you, are you confident that that, that that medical advice that, that you and others have been giving is going to form the basis of any decision to go forward? You know, we always have to see how things unfold, and and absolutely, we know people are getting restless. They're tired of being at home. Um, I've also seen some really good creativity, uh, you know, in terms of being Mm -hmm. at home and things that they've chosen to do, and and people out exercising and doing things that I've not seen on a scope and scale in a very long time. (laughs) So there's lots of good things that have come. Who who knew how many people in this country play guitar? I mean, I never knew that until he saw stuff on YouTube. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I think that as we go forward, we do have to be mindful of all of the health impacts of this particular virus, but we also have to be mindful of the health impacts of the control measures, of uh, the things that we've done and the unintended consequences from it. And so that that discussion, that um, debate ultimately about how to move forward in the plan requires the expertise absolutely of our healthcare professionals, our public health professionals. Um, and it requires the expertise of economists and business people and all of those things because, you know, no decision is without risks. Uh, as much as this one has been critical to slow the spread and protect people's health, this, the decision about um, when to open things back up is also critical. And the fact that we need to make sure our economy is healthy um, is also critical as well because if that's not the case, then it has significant impacts on people's health as well. And so, you know, this is why we have the legislature. This is why we have, you know, the broad range of voices around the table. And we, we all need to be respectful of, of those opinions and very mindful in terms of, of how we go forward. And so this has been absolutely the right measures to get us not in the state that uh, a country like Italy or Spain 
was, um, but we need to continue to refine our, our measures as we go forward. There's a lot of things that, that we can continue to do and must continue to do, and that it does include making sure that people get tested, making sure that we follow up, and it, and it does uh, continue to require of people um, to stay home when they're sick and, and not spread this virus or any other virus that they may have. I think one of the greatest concerns that many of us have is that we end up delaying and have, have more outbreaks that happen next year during flu season when it ramps mm-hmm. back up. And then we have two, two big viruses, um, you know, circulating. So it's going to continue to be <laughs> really a, a national effort, um, you know, an effort on every scale, local, provincial and national to, to manage this. And I would say over the, the next year or two. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson. Doctor, as always, thanks so much. And please, uh, again, extend our, our gratitude to all the people on your staff that are doing just outstanding work to try to control this and keep this community safe. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, of course, the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Business as usual, not really, but uh, business nonetheless uh, going on, especially here at the municipal level. Uh, the tax bills are going out. Uh, and uh, this, uh, an interesting story to those this year because of the variations that are going on because of COVID-19. But uh, there are some significant stories that we need to talk about. And it is going to vary from neighborhood to neighborhood and from uh, from ward to ward as we go through this. Joining us to explain uh, exactly how this is going to go out is uh, Brad Clark, City Council, of course, for Stony Creek Mountain. Brad, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Trust you guys and the family are, are surviving through this? We are healthy. How about you? That's, yep, same thing. And that's that's job one at this stage, isn't it? It is. I'm glad I mean, by the way, I, just as an aside, mm-hmm. uh, this is business unusual for for city councillors as well, too. You've been involved in politics for a long time. But doing virtual meetings and, and, and working from home as much as possible in situations like this, uh, I, I, talk to us about how you're finding that. I mean, is, is, it, is it still doable? Are you still finding as if you're, you're getting the stuff done and, and getting the input that you want to have in, into certain things? Yes, so the councillors and their constituency assistants, we all have virtual private networks directly into the city, and we have direct connection to um, the server at the city, so all of our files are available to all of us. Our phone calls are being forwarded, and so um, it's full operations for uh, the councillors' offices, and, and all reports that I've heard is that they've never been as busy as they are. Uh, numerous, uh, many, many, many more phone calls and emails, and uh, they're dealing with some very anxious residents on a whole number of issues. Well, and uh, I know that you're trying your best to try to accommodate uh, a lot of those requests, whether it's leaf and yard waste, uh, pick up things of this nature. That uh, I mean, it matters to people, and that's why you guys get the phone calls. And uh, but it's it's very much a, f- a very fluid process here, isn't it? Things change almost from week to week. It is. Um very dynamic would be the word that I would mm-hmm. use, and I'm finding that at a constituency level we're getting phone calls about federal and provincial issues as well. Um, and you're correct that, you know, the, the as the province goes through this, as the feds go through this, some days it feels like every day is different and we're getting new information by the day. So we're, we're managing it the best we can as counselors to provide the service to our, our residents. And uh, I've not received any complaints about the service that we're providing. Well, let's talk a little bit about the tax bills. And, and again, talk about a challenge. The city council's had to face this because of what's happening with COVID-19. Some people, sadly, have, have lost their jobs, have been laid off, whatever the variation on that theme might be. And there was some concern about paying this. So before we get into some of the numbers that I want to talk to you about, Brad, maybe you could just uh, backtrack a little bit and talk about some of the, uh, the, the programs you've put in place to try to help people through a pretty rough economic time. So taxpayers can defer um, their taxes, obviously. Um, if they don't have the money to pay, then we're, we're allowing them to defer. It's, it's always been their right, but we're making sure that people are aware of it. Uh, what we're doing as municipalities, we're deferring the penalty and the interest uh, for a couple of months to assist people through this process. Um, it, we felt that that was the least that we could do in that, in that regard. Um, and we're doing everything we can to assist people when they're calling in in, in, in financial need. Um, I can tell you we've had, in my office, phone calls from healthcare workers looking for accommodation in this process just so they can keep their families safe. So uh, the breadth of the issues that we're dealing with are large. 
and, and as a result, they can talk to their counselor or talk to somebody in the city about about those programs and how they're going to impact. But we should underscore once again, uh, as we talked about when you guys at City Council passed these motions, uh, this is not a tax holiday. You still have to pay them. It's just that you're going to give them a little leeway here until, obviously, right, the economic situation improves. That That is correct. I mean, un- unfortunately, the municipalities uh, don't have the financial wherewithal to, to quite literally give a tax holiday for property taxes. So the property taxes will come due. Um, uh, it's just a, a deferral, if you will. Let's talk a little bit about some of these numbers. And there's always going to be some discrepancies and some differences in these numbers, uh, if just because of the the makeup of, of the city itself and, and the dynamic that's in play here. Uh, and there are a number of extraneous factors to this, which I know you're certainly aware of, Brad, but the, the average taxpayer might need to be reminded about is it's not just a simple uh, mathematical equation. Here's how much your budget is. Let's divide this up among all the households in Hamilton. It varies from from neighborhood to neighborhood, but more importantly, from ward to ward, uh, because, well, area rating comes into play, uh, property assessments, of course, come into play. There's, there's a lot goes into this. Yes, it's, it's um, I, I, people are generally find, are surprised at how complicated and different the tax bills are across the city. Uh, naturally, you would expect that once we pass the budget, we divide it up amongst the 15 wards and everyone gets a portion of it and all the homeowners get a portion of it. Uh, but it doesn't quite work that way, as you said. Um, there's area rating. Um, for example, in Ancaster, they have snow removal that is area rated to their tax bill, so they'll pay that additional cost. Mm-hmm. But that is not done anywhere else in the city. Uh, the suburban areas, uh, and, and let me re- the, the rural components and the suburban components of the city have different tax bills based on area rating. For example, transit is area rated. And so each each ward, quite literally, ends up with a slightly different calculation. Uh, and then on top of that bill, you then have the market value assessment. So um, some of the wards that were the highest hit this time with tax increases that was the direct result of much higher market value assessment than other words. Yeah, and we should also remind people that the city does not control the market value assessment. That's done by a quote-unquote arm's-length agency for the provincial government. So, uh, I mean, I mean you, you can appeal it, I suppose. There's, there's a, At least there was a process. I assume there still is, Brad, uh, to appeal it if you don't like the assessment. But uh, there's not a whole lot the city can do about that. No, we're kind of the innocent bystander when it comes to market value assessment. MPAC is the organization that does that work and assigns the, the numbers and our finance division just receives that information from MPAC and plugs it into the system. And and there it, within that system there are some variables. I mean frontage is part of it depending on, on which area of the city in which you live. Uh, if you have a big wide lot that's going to have an impact. The value of the house, uh, I mean it's anecdotal but I mean we've been talking with uh, with uh, real estate people, this is before COVID obviously, mm-hmm. uh, and we talked about the real estate boom here in Hamilton and uh, it was pretty obvious from the statistics we were looking at Brad uh, that uh, the East End, Central Area, and, and part of the West End were really booming. That's where a lot of the houses seem to be buy- being sold these days. So it's not surprising that they're going to probably see, well, they will, as, as I see these numbers. Uh, wards 1 and 3 are the ones that I guess are going to see the most significant increases. But, I mean, that's because the value of those properties has increased. Well, and from time to time I hear from people and they tell me what it costs to build their house and that, that the market value is higher than that. That is the market value in terms of what people are willing to pay for your home, not the cost to rebuild your home and replace mm-hmm. your home. And so you're correct. Those numbers change. You can have market values much higher in one area of the city compared to another area of the city, and they can change quite literally on a dime. So it's, it's, it's complicated, that's for sure. Well, I can go back to the days, uh, the early days of amalgamation uh, when – the concern there, of course, was that some of the inner city wards and the old city, quote unquote, uh, we seem to be getting a bit of a tax break. Uh, but that seems to be reversing slowly, but surely as the values of those properties start to increase. So, so it's, and again, like I say, it's out of city council's control, but it certainly is a factor and it goes into the mathematical equation. How, what about the people in your ward? Stony Creek Mountain said some great growth over the last number of years. How's that looking? That's a 2.5% increase, um, and that's a little bit higher than, than some of the other wards. But again, the growth has been so dramatic in the ward, and growth tends to impact market value. 
So when you have buyers very interested in purchasing properties in, in an area, which Stony Creek is very popular, the market values have gone up dramatically in, in our community out here. Uh, ward 1, 4.1% uh, increase. Ward 2 is 37 I don't want to go through all of these. Ward 4.1 again in Ward 3 and uh, 3.1 in Ward 4. These are all significant increases over what they've had in the last little while, so that's that's going to have an impact on this. The other, as you touched on just a second ago, Brad, is uh, different services in different parts of the city. Uh, which is commonly called area rating, and uh, it's a policy that the city adopted many, many years ago. If I remember correctly, though, uh, it was supposed to be on a, a temporary basis. Uh, here we are later, 20 years later, uh, still doing it. Um, some people are concerned about these inequities, and I know that there's always been a, a, a debate about whether or not area rating is, is a fair policy. Uh, that seems to have been set aside. You've been preoccupied, and rightly so, with COVID-19 over the last couple of months. But given some of the budget pressures now, do you feel that there's going to be a push to try to have, put that back on the front burner and talk about area rating in this community? Well, area rating is a very unique beast. As you know, it's not a political policy. It's a taxation policy. Yeah. And the taxation policy was originally developed, and you're 100% correct, during amalgamation to offset some of the, the significant differences between the wards. And so you had areas in the city uh, that had much lower taxes and areas in the city that would have really high taxes. Some of that was market value. Some of it was based on the services. And so what the province said was to, to minimize the, that tax shift, uh, they allow the municipality to area rate on certain services. Hamilton has done a remarkable job in that over the last 20 years they have slowly weaned off area rating. There's a number of services that are no mm -hmm. longer area rated, and there are some that are. Fire, for example, is area rated, urban and rural. So urban Upper Stony Creek, we pay the same as downtown Hamilton in for fire, uh, but the rural area of my ward would pay a different cost because they don't get the same level of service. Yeah, we've seen that. I mean, I'm uh, right on the edge of Ancaster, and literally they're right across the road here. They, I mean, it's a different tax rate, which is yeah, that's uh, hard to it's one of the anomalies. Happens, Bill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is what it is, and, you know, that's, that's fine as far as we're concerned. Uh, uh, let me talk to you about budget pressures, Brad, while I've got you. And, and we heard this all through the budget discussions and debates earlier this year about the uh, the significant increases that not just Hamilton but every community were facing uh, because of some of the provincial downloads, and uh, some of which, of course, would, were delayed, but they're still coming, and, and a number of other things. Uh, and that seemed to be a tsunami of concern and pressure on the city it's a drop in the bucket compared to what you've seen because of what's happened with COVID, isn't it? It is, and I think it might have changed the dynamics also politically. Um, as you may recall, your listeners may not, um, the Premier had announced early in his one of his first budgets that they were going to merge public health departments uh, so that they would reduce mm -hmm. the number dramatically across the, the province. And I'm thinking it was like, from 38 to 11 or something like that. And, um, and there was reductions in public health. And now that we're experiencing a true public health crisis, um, you know, my expectation is that they will be readjusting their plans on public health. Well, I got that uh, anecdotal uh, of commitment, I guess, from the Premier when he was on our program last Friday when he talked about that. And, you know, because I, I, I right up front asked him, I said, considering the fact that there are significant cuts, I think it's on the area of $25 million for research, and then another further cut, of course, about healthcare delivery. And looking at what's going on in long-term care facilities and some of the other places like this, I'd like to think that governments are going to respond to that and say maybe it's time to reevaluate. And uh, even in the game long enough, Brad, I mean, is is there going to be a and not just specifically with the Ontario government, but with all governments right now uh, that seem to be on varying degrees into kind of an austerity kick? Let's lower taxes as possibly, but at the same time try to give people what they need uh, to exist and to, to you know live in cities like this. Uh, there's a, there's a consequence to, to that kind of mindset, and, and I think we're seeing it right up front now. Is it going to change the dynamic when it comes to future budgets? Um, I, I'm speculating, Bill, obviously. Sure, sure. But, but I, I, I have to believe, and perhaps it's the ideological side of me here, the, the, the idealistic story side to me here, that they're now seeing on the ground, in person, 
how our health care system is so crucial and how our public health care system is so crucial. So our public health system, it, it wasn't just providing um, um, free dental services to seniors or making uh, sure the kids are inoculated. A huge component of public health is the tracking of, of, of contagions, the tracking of, 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 of these types of viral diseases and others. And if you cut that funding, then you weaken that tracking system, which is the early warning that you need in your community to act. So my gut is that coming out of this, we're going to see more appropriate funding for public health. We're going to see dramatic changes to long-term care, which many of us have been calling for for a long time mm-hmm. in terms of, of you know, increasing the wages for personal support workers so they're not working three to four long-term care facilities trying to make up a full-time job. Those are the challenges that they were naive decisions that were made by governments in the past that allowed it. I think those things will change. The other element, too, as as you look back on this, and and we seem to have this opportunity to do this now, is the system, I guess, sort of worked as long as everything was fine, as long as there were, as you say, there were no variables, there were no, well, in this case, pandemics, anything like that, or, or disasters. Uh, that seemed to throw everything out of whack, which and maybe one of the lessons we can learn from this at, at every level of government, I guess, Brad, is, is that there's got to be a contingency, and you have to expect the unexpected sometimes and be prepared when that happens. You know, I, I've been very careful to remain nonpartisan since I've been back at, at City Hall, and when the first few budgets were passed and there were changes proposed to public health, I spoke out against it diplomatically. Mm, yep, you did. I spoke out against it, and I said, you're missing the boat. There's a, con- uh, there's, there's a role for public health that is vital in our community, and we're now seeing it in, uh, playing out every single day in the media. Public health, they're the ones that, they're like the canary in the, in, in the mine. We know something's going on because we're tracking these contagions. And so then they alert the government and they start pulling the levers to, to protect our community. And, and um, I know the mayor has been very aggressive on it uh, with the premier, and I think the premier is starting to realize that, that that function is vital, as is long-term care, as is home care, because all of those roles work interrelatedly together with our hospitals. So... It's a very complex beast, uh, but it's not one where funding should be cut um, randomly. I can remember, and this is going back obviously 15, 20 years now, uh, Dr. Richardson in those early days talking about the possibility of, of global pandemics. And I think a lot of people just got, come on, that's stuff for movies. It doesn't really happen. Uh, we kind of dodged the bullet with SARS. I mean, it was dangerous and people lost their lives, but uh, nowhere near the, 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 the breadth that we've seen with this. Uh, hopefully we've learned a lesson from this. Well, I, I had hoped that we'd learned lessons from SARS. We had a yeah. SARS inquiry, and there were recommendations, and some recommendations have been acted on. And then over time, we become complacent, and some um, municipalities more complacent than others. I was very pleased when I came back into Hamilton, and I saw the emergency operations center up and running and these things happening. Um, I would argue that Hamilton was a little bit better prepared than other municipalities, but that was from the expert advice of Dr. Richardson. It was from Mayor Eisenberger and the previous council who made the decisions, this is what we have to do to prepare ourselves. We would be a lot worse off had we not had that emergency operations center and those policies in place. Public Health Committee going back a few years, and you were in provincial politics at this time, uh, I think had three or four city representatives on it, and the rest of it was it was like a, a subcommittee. Uh, to their credit, though, city council some years ago said, no, everybody on city council is now on the Board of Health uh, because it's that important to every area of the city. So you're right. I think we were a little bit ahead of the curve with some other municipalities. And, uh, again, credit to Dr. Richardson for her uh, foresight uh, for doing that and for city council for adopting a policy like that. Well, and, and it, exactly. It's one thing to have a medical officer or have health, and we can all point to them and say we have an MOH. But to have an MOH with Dr. Richardson's expertise and to have a council, a political body, and a mayor, which is I'm, I'm stressing, who listen to the advice of that doctor and act on it, 
that is what is crucial. It's, I mean, I, for my, yeah, as you know, I've been around a, a bit. I've mm-hmm. seen municipalities fight with their medical officer of health. Mm-hmm. They know better or more than the medical officer of health. They don't. They're the experts. We should seek their advice. We should act on their advice. And in Hamilton, I'm proud that council over the many years has done that. They have. City Councilor Brad Clark. Brad, stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. God bless. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about, uh, well, a vaccine. And we've always been told that uh, there is no cure for COVID-19. There is no vaccine for it, which is why there's a concern about a second wave. Some suggest even a third wave if we don't pay attention to what we're supposed to be doing vis-a-vis physical distancing and things of this nature. But uh, we're told that there are a number of groups around the world that are working on uh, vaccines. But, of course, the codicil to that is they said, look, year and a half, two years maybe before we get something. Except that we heard over this uh, last couple of days now that clinical trials are actually starting with some prototype vaccines. For example, there's a, a, a project going on at the University of Oxford over in the U.K., uh, and they feel pretty confident about what they're doing. Is it too soon to be optimistic about this? Let's bring Dr. Todd Coleman into the conversation, Ph.D. assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. I hope you're feeling well. Yes, I'm feeling well. Thanks for having me. Good. Good to have you back with us on this uh, this day. As, as we're starting to get some good news, and, and I think a lot of people are starting to get kind of cautiously optimistic, and then we hear that, hey, these guys are, uh, well, the, the story I saw on this one is uh, University of Oxford are racing to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 and are so confident their drug worked that they're kind of planning on making a million doses of it for this summer. Uh, do we have reason for optimism here? Uh, it's hard. it's very, very hard to say without seeing any evidence. So the reason why they would have been uh, uh, pushing to do uh, clinical trials in the first place is that there's some evidence uh, in just smaller cell samples that this has been uh, an effective uh, vaccine uh, uh, against uh, the virus. But uh, we still likely haven't, they haven't looked at it in human beings yet. So once that happens... That's the key. That's what will tell us whether or not this is effective or not. What, what kind of process is being followed? Because we've heard all sorts of different things ever since the, the rush for the vaccine. I know there's a lot of work going on uh, up in KW. There's a lot of work going on here at Master and in other places right around the world uh, to try to work on something like this. But there's a process involved. I mean, I know some people are looking for the quick solution. I mean, there's some discussion about uh, other uh, drugs that were being used for to, to, to treat other uh, medical situations that said, well, maybe that one will work here too. Is, is that really part of the process to, to eliminate the stuff that's already been developed and say maybe that work, maybe that won't? Yeah, so th- there's uh, two separate things here. So with the drugs themselves, um, they've been looking at specific things like antiviral drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've heard a lot of talk about using um, using the drugs that are currently being being treated uh, used to treat people with HIV uh, because that suppresses the virus and uh, there's a lot of talk about that. But in terms of the vaccine itself, the process is really uh, rigorous uh, that needs to be need, it needs to go through to get uh, to the end point to say yes, this is good for mass consumption. So. The, it, it's based on a number of historical things. So we've, in the past, drugs and vaccines have been rushed. Uh, and then once it's actually in the population, we see massive amounts of side effects, uh, which is not what we want to see here. So it, uh, clinical trials themselves go through four staggered phases. Uh, and that's what we're likely seeing a lot of people starting on phase one of vaccine trials. But shouldn't the, in that process, though, doctor, shouldn't some of these things that, as you say, some of the, the side effects, the harmful side effects, uh, shouldn't those have been filtered out? I, I guess the, maybe one of the worst case scenarios in our history was, was thalidomide years ago that everybody thought was, this is perfect. This is going to be just fine. And, and, and thousands upon thousands of families were adversely affected by that. But and, and again, it raised the question, well, why couldn't you guys have, have noticed that that was a, a possible outcome before you put it on the market? Yeah, and that, that's why the, the most of the researchers are saying this is going to take a long time. So fa- the first phase of trials is only uh, usually the drug is given or the vaccine is given to a really small group of people. 
this looks at drug safety. This looks at uh, potential side effects, uh, how much dosage needs to be uh, given, those kinds of things. And in terms of a small group of people, I mean, probably less than 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if there's nothing of concern there, it moves on to higher and higher numbers, whereas phase, uh, the third phase, for example, is a thousand or more people. Over how much of a period of time? Let's, let's, let's suppose you were setting one up right now, and uh, phase one, phase two, phase three, uh, are those uh, two weeks long, a month long? How long did they take for the for the trial to actually occur? Well, that's the thing. We need to make a reasonable reasonable assumption that the people ah. would come into contact with uh, uh, the novel coronavirus uh, itself. So usually it's months uh, just to see. Uh, whether or not, but right now, in terms of social distancing, we're we're actually reducing the probability of people coming into contact with it. So it's a little tricky because we can't just give people uh, artificially give them uh, uh, put them in contact with people with with the infection itself. We just need to see how it plays out. That's why, in terms of the time period for that, we usually look at a couple months. Um, and see whether or not it's, it's appropriate. Maybe a, this may sound awfully elementary, but for the sake of the conversation, what by definition is a vaccine? I mean, I've, I've heard varying stories about this, that it's something that's going to, as you say, knock the virus down. Uh, I, I've heard other healthcare experts say, actually, it's a little bit of the virus and it helps you to build up antibodies, which is why you know, sometimes you get sick for a couple of days after you get like a, a, a booster shot, as we used to get years ago. Uh, it, it, does it vary or is it, are there a particular formula that you follow? Uh, there's not a particular formula. It's actually uh, a lot of different ways of thinking about the the, the virus itself. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of what, what most of the clinical trials, uh, you can think of uh, what a dead virus, uh, a whole dead virus could be an example, uh, or pieces of the virus. So the virus itself has certain receptors on it uh, that helps it bind to humans. Uh, and what could potentially uh, uh, in a vaccine is that it it controls for just little chunks of the virus so that there's never any risk of of uh, a whole immune response from a whole virus, uh, dead virus, but just little pieces of it so that our immune system is able to attack it a little bit better uh, after uh, after you're infected. You raised an interesting point a minute ago, though, doctor, that uh, that I've heard before that I, I think kind of scares a lot of people is that uh, because we are isolating and, and distancing uh, as one doctor put it rather bluntly more people have to keep the virus for us to develop an anti uh, an antibody system against this right now which sounds a little daunting yeah it, it definitely is and it's a, it's a catch here right so a lot I've been asked that question a lot about uh, uh, whether or not we should be uh, interacting a little bit more so that immunity is built up. The problem there is that we we clearly can't control this, right? So we're seeing mm-hmm. thousands upon thousands of infections per day and also thousands of people dying per day. So making this uh, more common in the population means we're going to see uh, a really high ramp up of deaths uh, as a result. And we really don't want to do that. So this is the physical distancing is still the, the the more prudent policy right now although it is going to make uh, building up of antibodies uh and, and and some sort of a defense mechanism that much more difficult that's right it would take a, a little bit longer because it's taking us longer to actually have the, the threshold of people who have to have been infected uh to get that uh, what's called herd immunity I guess I'm going to ask you to speculate on this one, Doctor, because uh, we, as you've mentioned to us before, we're, we're learning more about this virus almost on a daily basis now, things that we didn't know vis-a-vis symptoms and, and things of this nature. But is it a given that uh, that once we do, for instance, get exposed to this virus, uh, that we can build up antibodies? I mean, it's, you know, as, as we've done with other viruses that have come along, or, or, cause, or do we know that for a fact yet? Yeah, it's not necessarily a given. There's some okay. conflicting news articles that say um, that in in some or conflicting research articles that say that uh, there's no evidence that people who were infected developed a significant number of antibodies. Uh, but then there's other ones that say that they did. So 
really it's the idea that uh, large, massive scale studies that aren't just reflections of 10 to 15 patients need to be conducted right now to see whether or not in those who are recovered from uh, COVID-19, whether or not they have antibodies and what proportion of people uh, actually have that uh, antibody production in their bodies. Well, we know that there's a process undergoing right now where some of those people that have recovered uh, are now donating plasma, we're told, for, for testing. Is, is that a relatively new process? Uh, no, it's not. It's generally with any type of infectious disease, we're, we're usually looking at antibody uh, production, and this plasma is, is definitely, I, I've heard of the same study you're, you're talking about, uh, and it's going to go a really, really long way to help us figure out exactly what's going on in terms of our immune response to uh, coronavirus. I, I want to get back to these guys at Oxford, if I could, for just a second. I, I mentioned off the top here that uh, they say uh, they plan to make a million doses of, of uh, what they're developing here for the summer. Uh, can we assume, doctor, that, that those million doses, which sounds rather significant, uh, are going to be part of the testing? Uh, I would think I would think that they are. So fa- the last phase um, of a, a clinical trial is when it's been approved after it's been in uh, several thousand people. Uh, and it's usually when the, the point when it's on the market. So then they look at how does it work in real life, uh, not just in these study settings, and what are uh, long-term benefits and uh, potential risks that we might see. Uh, so a million doses, while it sounds significant, it's really not that significant if you think about the population size. Um, in we, We're already seeing a million people infected in the States almost uh, already, so... Uh, it would be uh, uh, hopefully distributed on a more mass scale if it's found to be effective. And to your point, I'm just looking at some of the data here that's coming out of uh, the UK, and they're suggesting that the, their test case is going to be 500 volunteers, and they're going to actually start that today, uh, which is rather interesting. But as you mentioned uh, before, we anticipate hearing news on the weekend. This is going to take months just to do, work this test group through the process, I would think. Yeah, usually that's the case. Sometimes in very, very rare situations where they've had the opportunity there's uh, uh, some uh, degree of effectiveness is seen so it tends to move a little faster along the phases Um, so that could be something that we see with this but again it's just a matter of a waiting game uh, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this. I know you'd understand this, but a lot of our listeners and I don't quite understand this. They say what they're working with here now is derived from a weakened version of the common cold virus from chimpanzees, and it's genetically altered to make it harmless to humans and then engineered to produce a same spike-like protein uh, for the new coronavirus used to infect in humans. Uh, right. It, it's... This, this, this is so bizarre to actually say this is let's go down this road uh how much of this is, is well and i'm a great believer in science i think what we've done here is just incredible but is there a, a an element of of just you know luck involved in this to say let's go this way let's go this way uh in, in terms of luck i don't know if they've already uh coronavirus was actually mapped out really quickly and in terms of those uh, yeah. proteins that you're talking about um, they're looking at similar proteins on other versions of coronavirus that could be used in the vaccine. So remember uh, what I what I said earlier was uh, the the pieces of the virus uh, are similar across different coronaviruses, mm-hmm. and what they're likely looking at is something similar so that it produces a, a harmless immune response that we'll be able to control it. So that's where they're coming from on this. But, I mean, there have been some stories that we've heard. I mean, well, the development of penicillin, for instance, uh, you know, the, from bread mold. I mean, who knew? But uh, they, some things happen, I guess, in, in these laboratory tests uh, where all of a sudden they say, whoa, are you, that's almost like a eureka moment. Are we anticipating something like that with this? Yeah, I, I would I would think that uh, we're living in a little bit of, of a, a different time right now. So we've been able to really figure out a lot about this virus very quickly um, compared to what we would have been able to do even 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, so uh, the understanding of uh, viruses and uh, uh, the composition of them has really, really grown uh, exponentially. So an understanding of how this coronavirus is similar to another coronavirus 
and the mapping of different genetic traits of all of them uh, has really come a long way. So it's not really a matter of uh, luck. It's more of a an under, uh, really more overall understanding of what viruses look like. Some people are characterizing this as a, a, a flu. Uh, is is that a fair comparison to suggest this is? I, I know at one time the president said it's just a severe flu, but is it is it the same family or is it this totally different? Uh, it, yeah, it's a completely different family. So a flu virus is not in the same family as a coronavirus, which is, uh, I think you mentioned it, uh, similar to the common cold. The common mm-hmm. cold is a coronavirus. Um, and they they look very and behave very differently. Uh, we've heard from the Center for Disease Control yesterday and a number of other medical experts uh, on both sides of the border, Doctor, have talked about this, that if, in fact, there is going to be a second wave, and we, again, don't know a whole lot about this right now, but it may well coincide with the beginning of flu season, which would, uh, I would think, exacerbate uh, the public health concerns. Yeah, uh, we, that, that's, again, one of the other unknowns, because we're still in the middle of it, and we've been talking about a second wave, and for a second wave to happen, uh, we actually need to see some reduction in the cases yeah. uh, that we're seeing right now. So if we do see a reduction, perhaps over the summer months, where people are less likely to come into contact with each other indoors in, uh, and come in contact with the virus, uh, we may see a resurgence in the fall, in the winter, um, similar to what happened 100 years ago with the Spanish flu. But again, that's mostly um, an unknown at this point. Uh, but people are are bracing for the possibility of that happening. Well, and I, I guess if there's a, a little bright light here, it's the fact that at least I know if, when the flu season does come upon us again, we do have vaccines for that. Uh, not as many people probably take us up on that as they should, but it, it might be uh, wise at this point to consider, if you've never had a flu shot, that uh, just to try to at least mitigate some of the damage that could be happening between flu and COVID, that at least there's this, there's an inoculation for that anyway. That's right. So uh, in terms of uh, uh, being doubly, the flu is still circulating. It circulates all the Mm -hmm. time. Uh, And if we have a a vaccine that we could be giving for people to prevent uh, them from, for example, getting the flu and then a few weeks later getting uh, COVID-19, we really want to protect people, especially in terms of the respiratory functions as much as possible. And the flu vaccine is a really good way to do that. Absolutely. Uh, Doctor, it's always great to have you on the program here to to put some context into a lot of the stuff that we hear. Uh, We're all jumping on the Internet. We're trying to get as much information as we can, but it's it's great to get a a professional opinion such as yours to try to uh, give us the right direction on this. Thanks so much for this today. Yeah, you're very welcome. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Dr. Todd Coleman, of course, uh, Ph.D. Assistant Professor in Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.